from PRX. Today on Studio 360... The opening line is just one of the most powerful pieces of rock and roll. Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. The album that fused rock and poetry and embodied the new spirit of American punk. This is a statement of artistic purpose, that you are going to be in control of your art and your sense of persona. Patti Smith's groundbreaking debut album, Horses. Plus... I think no matter what sort of a 15 you had, that moment of life is a really, really intense and powerful and defining one. Susan Choi's riveting new novel captures the angst and the enduring mistakes of high school. None of us realize when we're going through that time of life how intense it is. That and more is ahead on Studio 360 right after this. Studio 360, I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken, please. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. I'm a longtime fan of Susan Choi. Her first novels I read were American Woman, about a fictionalized Patty Hearst, and A Person of Interest, about a campus bombing, both of which were part of my reading prep for writing my own novel about late 60s radicals. Her new novel, Just Out, is Trust Exercise, about teenagers and trust and betrayal and the blurry lines between fiction and real life. So, Susan, the the main characters in this novel are students at a performing arts high school in the South in the 1980s. Why, you uh, attended the high school for the performing arts and visual arts in Houston in the 1980s. Um, So I'm assuming, like these kids, you two were in the theater department? I was in the theater department. This feels like a real gotcha moment, yes. I did attend a theater arts program when I was in high school. And and was your experience being this theater student at this performing arts high school, what was your feeling about it? I loved going to a theater arts high school. I begged my parents to let me go to this school. They wanted me to go to a traditional academic school where I could have, you know, taken all of the APs and the foreign languages and, and actually prepared for college, which I didn't really do. Instead, I went to this theater arts school where I had really a wonderful time for the most part. Uh Um, So in that sense, it's very different from the characters I'm writing about. Uh So adolescence is intense under any construction, but coming of age, being an adolescent, going through puberty, and being in a theater program like perhaps you were in, certainly like your characters are in, so the hormones plus the vulnerability and the ego deconstruction, I'd never thought of it as potentially dangerous, but it sounds potentially dangerous. Yeah, it does sound potentially dangerous. It seems like it should be illegal. I think it's really worth noting that, like, it's such an intense time of life, which you don't, obviously, like, none of us realize when we're going through that time of life how intense it is, right? You don't have the perspective. It it seems like one of the morals of this story is that we don't ever recover from being 15 years old. I think no matter what sort of a 15 (laughs) you had, you probably... I don't, I don't know if I'd say you never recover, but I think that moment of life is a really, really 
intense and powerful and defining one. Um, I was done with the book by the time the Kavanaugh hearings riveted all of us last fall, but Right. You know, I, was I hadn't really, thought of that. I was really I put struck. that out of my head. You <laughs> did you? Well, yeah. Um, it was this sort of moment at which as a nation we all went back there. Went back there and thought like, yeah, wow, I was fifteen once too. Yeah. And it was a really important moment. Yeah. Highly relevant now that you mention it to how fifteen year olds yeah. act. It reminds you that you were such a different person at that moment of your life, but also that moment of life is so profound mm. and affecting. Yes. So will you read something? Yeah. So this is an excerpt from really early in the book, and it's early in the school year for two students at this school, Sarah and David. They're both theater students who have been doing um, all sorts of different things, including trust exercises with their teacher, Mr. Kingsley, and they had a thing for each other. And um, that thing hasn't been acknowledged yet. It hasn't been admitted, but it's going to be soon. In trust exercises one day, perhaps late in the fall, David and Sarah were never quite sure. They would not speak of it until summer. Mr. Kingsley turned off all the lights in the windowless rehearsal room, plunged them into a locked, lightless vault. At one end of the rectangular room was a raised platform stage, 30 inches or so off the floor. Once the lights were turned off in the absolute silence, they heard Mr. Kingsley skim the length of the opposite wall and step onto the stage, the edge of which they faintly discerned from bits of luminescent tape that hovered in a broken line like a thin constellation. Long after their eyes had adjusted, they saw nothing but this, a darkness like that of the womb or the grave. From the stage came his stern, quiet voice, voiding them of all previous time, stripping them of all knowledge. They were blind, newborn babes and must venture themselves through the darkness and see what they found. Immediately, bodies encountered each other and startled away. He heard this, or presumed it. Is that some other creature with me in the darkness? He whispered, ventriloquizing their apprehension. What does it have? What do I have? Four limbs that carry me forward and back. Skin that can sense cold and hot, rough and smooth. What is it? What am I? What are we? That's Susan Choi reading from her new novel, Trust Exercise. There, there's a scene in one of your earlier books, American Woman, um, where the characters also play this game. There is. Um, so I guess... You must have done trust exercises, and they were meaningful to you. I've been interested in this kind of enforced group activity for the sake of, I guess you could say in both cases, a social engineering outcome, right? Yeah. Like in American Woman, the characters do something very, very similar, and it is in the service of turning themselves into uh, revolutionaries, guerrillas. And this is, by the way, a novel based on a character very much like Patty Hearst. Very much like um, someone who experiences a, a similar series of extremely strange yeah, yeah. Um, episodes, including, you know, a politically motivated kidnapping. Yeah, and then in, in this book, Trust Exercise, the characters are also, they're being formed and molded by an ideology, basically. They have a teacher who is remaking them 
in accordance with what they don't really recognize at the time is an ideology, right? right. It's, an, it's an ideology of emotional— Sensitivity. Yeah, yeah right. emotional daring and, you know, individual freedom. And, and they don't—they're young, so they don't recognize that this is an ideological project, really, that they're a part of. If not a cult of a kind. If not a cult of a kind. I mean, no one no one ever calls it that. But um, one of the things that I learned about certain sorts of trust exercises that I was really interested in, because, you know, these are acting exercises that I didn't make up uh, by any stretch, but these are codified exercises. And when I was first thinking about them, even before I was working on this book, when I thought I was going to write a really different book, one of the things that intrigued me was that I discovered that the Church of Scientology engages in practices that are really almost identical Hmm. to certain aspects of Meisner technique, which is at the root of a lot of the trust exercises that I encountered when I was a student. And so, you know, you said cult. You you said it, not me. um, And there are a lot of actors in that one. Well, there are, and it's no no accident. Um, There's a an amazing sort of um, connection between Sanford Meisner's acting technique and L. Ron Hubbard's uh, religious practices as he defined them. I mean, that's not a coincidence. I'm interested. I can't let you uh, just say, and I was working on another book before this one. So when you're working on another book, do you just like, eh, this isn't working and toss it away and then start in on this one? Or did it become this? I mean, there was another book that I was working on that I was working on it for the entire time that I was writing this book. Trust Exercise started out being just a sort of a fun file on my hard drive that I would play around with when my real and important project How wasn't funny. going well. How funny. Right. So, so but, this book actually really got the benefit of my not paying that much attention to it, to be honest. Like, I would dip into it when I felt more compelled by it. And then as soon as it stopped being fun, I'd put it down again and go back to the wow. other thing. The benefit is that when I went back to it, surprising ideas would occur to me about it that I don't think necessarily would have occurred to me if this had been my focus. Do you know what I mean? Uh If I'd been like sitting at the desk going, what next? How do I fix it? How do I finish it? Right, right, right. As a problem to be solved. But this almost seems like, if you could repeat it, like good way to write books. Oh, yeah. Well, now you've just ruined it for me. I know. Kurt, I'll never be able to do it again. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. So you've written a lot about, not just in this book, but others about the relationships between teachers and students. Yeah. Uh, Why does that interest you What is up with that? Yeah, well, you know, I don't know. I mean, just to be the armchair psychologist, like, could it be that my father was a teacher for decades? And that's what I do for a living, too. So I think it's an abiding source of interest. What did your father teach, by the way? My father was a mathematician, so kind of a different subject. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Then, then, um, but my, but his father was a literature professor. So you see, it skips generations. Um. I mean, I mean, we now, in this moment, certainly talk more than ever about the power and balance of teachers and students and all that. Is that part of the interest? Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. It's, that's really interesting to me. I think it's really interesting to a lot of us right now to think about, you know, when I was a student, I think that there was a real uh, seduction to the idea that there was no power and balance, right? That you could be the same as your teacher. If you were smart, if you were talented, if you were special in some way, and I I say that in deep quotes, like if you could believe yourself to be special, if you could seize the attention of this person, that might mean you were the same as them. You know, and I think that that's one of the things that's going on in trust exercise is that there's an idea that 
it's possible to be the same as Mr. Kingsley, as one of his students. It's possible if you're special, if you're talented, if you catch his eye, to be um, somehow on the same level as he is in terms of power, that there isn't going to be this radical differential that's going to color everything that happens. And that was a romance that I experienced all through my years as a student, through high school, college, graduate school. I think there was always that sense of a false equality that you wanted to pursue. Speaking of Mr. Kingsley, I suddenly think, oh, Dead Poet Society and this Robin Williams character who was the Mr. Kingsley of that show. Were you familiar with that? Did you see that movie at the time? I absolutely saw that movie in the theater and, you know, cried like a baby through it. And I've never until now made the connection between this material and, and that movie. But you're right. It's absolutely similar. Yeah. Um, Speaking of your Patty Hearst novel, American Woman, it's been turned into a movie that's it about has, to happen. It has. It's so exciting. It's been turned into a movie that is going to be at the Tribeca Film Festival. Run, don't walk. And will and will soon be in theaters everywhere? One hopes. And has that ever happened to you before, which is to say a novel of yours adapted? No, this is, the, this is the first time. It's really exciting. I got to visit set, and that was really exciting. It was a just delightful experience to, you know, walk around amid, like, tables covered with ashtrays because it's the 70s in the movie and you need a lot of ashtrays to dress a set. It was just utterly delightful to both feel as if something that I had done long ago had sparked this great enterprise and to feel like it really had nothing to do with me. You know, I didn't have any anxiety about like, oh, what'll it be like? I was just like, this is this is happening. It's like having your child become an adult. Exactly. It really is. I mean, you know, I don't know what that's like because my, my older child— like is that, except without the ashtrays. Well, without the ashtrays, one hopes. I mean, my older child is 14, and he is unprecedentedly independent in the world. I mean, this is his first year of high school. And, yeah, you're right. It's similar because he just goes off and does his thing, and it's amazing to watch. Um, Susan Choi, uh, I've been a fan, longtime fan, first-time talker. Um, (laughs) Thanks for uh, coming in. This was a great pleasure. It was a great pleasure for me, too. Thank you. Susan Choi's novel, Trust Exercise, is out now. The movie, based on her earlier novel, American Woman, premieres this week at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. If you'd like to listen to a longer version of our conversation, you may on the Studio 360 podcast, wherever you find your podcasts. Coming up, the unspeakable things a Baltimore cop sees doing his job. At one point, there was one that a guy had been shot through the head. And sometimes turns it into poetry. Writing was very cathartic for me, and it's become more cathartic as time has gone on because I started using it more and more as a vehicle to express things I'd seen and uh, how I felt about them. Edward Doyle Gillespie. He's a Baltimore police detective and a published poet. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. Edward Doyle Gillespie was teaching and studying literature and history on track for an academic career. But his plan changed in the fall of 2001. 9-11 was my first day of graduate school. Like everyone else, I watched it unfold, and uh, I thought, well, okay, I'm going to uh, get that master's degree. I'm going to earn a black belt, and I'm going to go uh, protect people from bad guys. 
Today, Edward Doyle Gillespie is still teaching, but not the humanities and not at a university. These days, he's Detective Gillespie, and he's an instructor at the Baltimore Police Academy. He teaches community policing, counterterrorism, and ethics. For our Studio 360 series called Day Jobs, he tells us how being a cop inspired his other career as a poet. FYI, there are some graphic descriptions of violent crimes coming up. When I first came on, I worked patrol. Those are the women and men that get the call. When you dial 911, it goes through eventually to them, and they're the ones that come to deal with the problem. And these are the people that work a post. We call it pushing a car. (laughs) I worked larceny from auto, intelligence or crime analysis, and I was in a unit, a special task force for our Pennsylvania Avenue corridor. Pennsylvania Avenue runs through Baltimore City, and it runs through some of our very high crime, uh, at-risk areas. So you have a lot of poverty, a lot of disrupted families, a lot of narcotics, a lot of health problems. So we were a task force specifically put together to help suppress the crime, the shootings, the narcotics distribution along the street. I can remember a, a child abuse case. This child had had half of its face literally bitten off by this woman who was probably suffering from mental illness and possibly on narcotics. I think about the, uh, the homicides. At one point there was one that a guy had been shot through the head. He was very young, maybe 21 years old, lying in an unfinished house. And I remember the flies gathering around him. I can remember one guy just saying to me, why don't you just go ahead and kill me? Kill me in this alleyway. I I, I don't care anymore. I don't want to live anymore. Just, and he started very methodically telling me, like, you know, put it behind my ear. No one's going to care. And having to go from that moment of that adrenaline rush of chasing this person, the authoritative moment of, you know, show me your hands and get on the ground. and, And then having to dial back and realize this is, very pain sick human being that looked at this police officer at me and said I think I want you to kill me and saying to him come on come out of this alley let me give you some information on how to get some help writing was very cathartic for me and it's become more cathartic as time has gone on because I I started using it more and more as a vehicle to express things I'd seen and uh, how I felt about them My uh, dad was a history teacher and was a high school principal. My mom was an English teacher. I, you know, was an only child and spent a lot of time reading. I went to a school in Philadelphia, a private boys' school, and I studied history at George Washington University. And all the time I've written, I've always written fiction and I've always written poetry. And as time has gone on, I've just continued doing it. And whatever was going on in my life was reflected in that. Police work found its way into that as well. There have always been these moments. This is the thing. There are these moments in policing, these distilled moments of a word, an image, a smell, a concept that to me bespeaks of a poem, kind of an encapsulated poem right there. 
This is called Suspended. The guy is a prison Muslim, gray-bearded and dying of prostate cancer. He drove up here from Virginia in the battered white Honda that a mosque brother gave him, and I pulled him over for the missing lights, the reek of gas and rubber, the jigsaw of glass that should have been a rear window. His eyes are shuttered halfway, as he calls me Mr. Officer, from behind the wheel and admits that he hasn't had a license in five years. This trip, he thought, would give him something to do while he waited. He is sorry about the car and the mess he's made. He doesn't want me to think the worst of him. He just wanted me to know this. And he said, you know, I'm really sorry that you had to bother with this. I'm sorry. He said, I, well, he basically wanted to connect with me as, a, as a, a human being and said, you know, essentially he was on his way out. He expected to die. It was a really powerful moment. I want you to feel safe. I want to feel safe. I want to get this job done. I want to make sure you come away feeling as though you weren't abused. I want to make sure that if you are that person that we need to bring to justice, that we do it in a safe, professional way. And I mean, and I've been in situations where this person was combative. They were ready to fight a cop. <laughs> you know, I've been shot at. And, um, and I've also dealt with people that were just scared. And when someone is scared, I feel that I can talk to them in such a way that brings them down, that helps them understand, you know, we're not here to hurt you. I think it must have been my first year out. We had a homicide. I remember running from my car. The guy had been stabbed. And he looked at me. He was lying on his back with his arms spread wide. And he looked me in the eye, and I watched him take his last breath. This is called Final Hodge. When the call to prayer goes out from the mosque on Islamic Way, I am helping to load Tavon Fitzgerald into the back of Medic 4. He has only a small hole from the girl's kitchen knife over his heart, but his body will erupt with a raspberry tide when the residents down at Maryland General crack his chest to practice the alchemy of resurrection. They will fail, unable to make the quick out of the dead, and I will gather his clothes, baggy layers of ghetto soldier uniform heavy with blood, and document them on a police form 56. I will wrap the chain of his zodiac medallion around his butane lighter and stuff them into the smallest of the evidence envelopes. I will shake the clots loose from his ragged sweatshirt as I give it to the next red plastic bag in the pile. I will change my gloves three times and wonder whether he was distracted at that last moment by the loudspeaker reminding him that God is great. I've, I've read it in, in public and um, some people are shocked by the imagery. The idea of seeing so much of a person's blood, which is something that most people will not experience, which is horrifying to them. A poem can be a type of, of ambassador from one world to another. This guy was a person. You know, he wasn't a statistic. He wasn't a concept. He was a person whose life ended. That's the thing that, one of the things I found so powerful. I'm like, I've got his personal effects in my hands and I'm processing them and thinking, this, you know, this is this guy's lighter. 
I knew that in terms of my psyche, in terms of the cultures that I understand and my understanding of life, I'd crossed a kind of Rubicon, you know, that the people that sat in classes with me before this and were my students or my peers would not understand the world in which I lived. And it was kind of a baptism. When I talk to people, my friends who are still in the academic world and we talk about things we've encountered, you know, at our jobs, had people say, no, no one's pulled a knife on me or said they wanted to kill me or fired a gun at me. And so the idea of saying, you know, wow, I could really die out here. And then to to look at people that are in various stages of existential crisis, you know, um, will I exist tomorrow? Um, you know, am I going to eat again? Am I literally going to starve? There's a dead body in front of my home or in my community. You know, how close is this to me? Is this going to happen to me? Being that close to death, being that close to the fragility of life, it can't help but affect you. Detective Edward Doyle Gillespie is an instructor at the Baltimore Police Academy and the author of two books of poetry, Masala Tea and Oranges and On the Later Edition of Sancho Panza. Studio 360's Jocelyn Gonzalez produced our story. Coming up next. Everyone was singing. Turles washed up. Hurried down the beach. And everyone is so sad. The first installment of our new series about pioneering albums by female musicians. The fearless brilliance of Patti Smith's horses. That's next on Studio Classic Album Sundays is this nine-year-old series where a room full of people, strangers, listen to some great record album from beginning to end. It was launched in London by the DJ and journalist Colleen Cosmo Murphy, and it now takes place in cities all over the world. Studio 360 is teaming up with Classic Album Sundays for a series of stories we're calling This Woman's Work about important historic albums by female artists. Our first story focuses on one of the great seminal punk albums. It blended raw rock with poetry and New York spirit at this intense best-of-times, worst-of-times moment in the city's history. Here is Colleen Murphy. This is arguably one of the most arresting opening lines on a debut album. Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. It's delivered with unequivocal power, 
and for many, is the first introduction to an artist who will become one of the most important game changers of rock and roll. A mass leave, thick, hot stone, my sins my own, they belong to me. I remember hearing this opening indictment when listening to the album for the first time in my teenage bedroom. It threw me into the nucleus of Patti Smith's thrilling and scary environs, worlds away from my suburban hometown to the dirt, the chaos, and the raw energy of New York City. And it made me feel like I could do anything. In fact, I moved to the city a few short years later. Punk is built upon a DIY attitude, and along with the Stooges and the MC5, Patti Smith is considered by many to be one of punk rock's founding mothers. Her debut album, Horses, was released at the end of 1975, a full five months before the first Ramones album, but it ignited the punk explosion more in personality rather than musicality. The album's sprawling freeform music and poetry was the antithesis of the three-minute, three-chord sound for which punk would eventually become known, as the Patti Smith Group guitarist Lenny Kay remembers. Especially at that time, punk had yet to harden into a specific definition. Uh, it wasn't, say, the Ramones template that it would become. It was mostly an attitude of wanting to assume some kind of responsibility for oneself and find your own way. As the 60s slipped into the 70s, New York City was experiencing an identity crisis and rock and roll was experiencing a spirituality crisis. There was a general cynicism toward hippie ideals, and New York City in particular was more adept at celebrating the individual. A cohesive cultural center had not yet replaced the unifying force field of the 60s counterculture movement. This was especially true with music, as different experimental strains began to fan out, inspired by other forward-thinking late 60s New York acts like the Velvet Underground and the East Village electronic duo The Silver Apples. Around this time, Lenny Kay was working in a record shop and doing some writing on the side, and he remembers that there were few venues for local bands and new acts to play. But then he saw a poster for the New York Dolls and welcomed it as a new chapter in the downtown music scene. With their flamboyant cross-dressing and defiant posturing, the New York Dolls set the stage for glam rock, a fusion of the edgy rock and roll of the Stooges and the theatrical cabaret scene that was flourishing in Greenwich Village's gay community, a community galvanized by the Stonewall Uprising in 1969. The scene of early 70s New York City isn't just the backdrop to the story of Patti Smith's 1975 album Horses. I believe the city itself is the album's greatest external influence. 
Patty Smith left her New Jersey working-class town for New York City in the late 60s. She befriended future superstar photographer Robert Maplethorpe and became an artist in a complete sense of the word and ideal. And then the city molded her. She worked in bookshops, met the beat poets Gregory Corso, Allen Ginsberg, and William Burroughs while living at the Chelsea Hotel. She starred alongside drag performance artist Wayne County in the plays Femme Fatale and Islands. She co-wrote and starred in her lover Sam Shepard's play, Cowboy Mouth. And she wrote loads of poetry, but she didn't read it. She performed it, accompanied by her friend Lenny Kay, with whom she had hit it off immediately. She came down to the record store where I was working, Village Oldies on Bleecker Street, and, you know, we kind of dance around. I uh, put some of our favorite records on, The Bristol Stomp, uh, Maureen Gray's Today's the Day, My Hero by the Blue Notes, and we just got to be friendly. Smith approached Kate to play with her at St. Mark's Poetry Project. And when uh, she was going to do her first poetry reading in February of 1971 at St. Mark's. She wanted to shake it up a little bit. She didn't want to do just a kind of boring recitation. And so she knew I played a little guitar, and she asked me if I could simulate a car crash on the guitar, which I could. (laughs) So uh, we performed on February 10th, 1971 at St. Mark's. There was a star-studded audience at St. Mark's that night, including Andy Warhol himself. The applause was rather uh, overwhelming. And at that time, Patty perhaps could have continued in that vein, but she felt that she wasn't ready, that she she had a, a sense of who she needed to be before. Basically, it wasn't to get ahead. It was mostly just to kind of get a hint of what the future might be if it swung our way. Smith and Kay didn't realize it at the time, but this was a cataclysmic event that would trigger a series of aftershocks. They'd go on to open for Phil Oaks at Max's Kansas City and perform at the cabaret club Reno Sweeney as the opening act for Warhol's superstar Holly Woodlawn. And they'd put on Smith's own self-styled performance entitled Rock and Rimbaud, a tribute to her muse and imaginary boyfriend, French symbolist poet Arthur Rimbaud. The other force that helped give birth to horses is the opening of a certain venue on the Bowery. When Hilly Crystal opened CBGB and Omfug. Country, bluegrass, blues, and Omfug, uh, other music for uplifting gourmandizers. He booked acts that fit that bill in the club's opening weeks. He didn't have a grand plan to make it the American home for the burgeoning punk rock scene. The rise of CBGBs and its dynasty of acts, including the Ramones, Television, the Talking Heads, and Blondie, not only mirror, but actually frame the rise of Patti Smith and her group. Along with Kay, Patti enlisted keyboard player Richard Soule. She poached bassist Ivan Krall from Blondie and drummer J.D. Doherty from the Mumps to form her group. Luckily for them, CBGBs afforded the band the artistic freedom and an open-minded audience to explore their musical ideas, songwriting, and performance style. 
Journalists and A&R record execs started trekking downtown to check out the commotion, and CBs became the nexus of a scene. Patti Smith and her group were working hard, performing two shows a night, four nights a week, for seven consecutive weeks. It was during this stint that legendary A&R man Clive Davis came down to check them out. And he had heard of what Patty does, and he needed a maverick for his, his new label. And he also appreciated artists who gave 110% on stage. He wanted total commitment from that artist. And uh, he saw that in Patty, and uh, he took a chance with us. Smith and Kay had previously recorded her debut single, a cover of Jimi Hendrix's Hey Joe and the B-side Piss Factory at Hendrix's Electric Lady Studios. They returned there with John Cale, the former cellist with the Velvet Underground, as their album producer. They liked the idea of his artistic heritage, but things didn't go as smoothly as planned. I do believe that John had a slightly different idea on how to approach the record than us. I think he was very much into uh, his orchestral period. He liked the Beach Boys. He wanted to really explore all the soundscapes that were possible. And we needed to defend who we were at that moment in time. For instance, we wanted to improvise on Birdland. And John, you know, thought perhaps it could be expanded horizontally, but we wanted to capture a moment. So his input was, well, if you want to improvise, you got to have a great improvisation. You can't settle. It's just like, you just can't like, oh, this is live, we're doing it, and onward and upward. Birdlands, which started out as a three or four minute poem set to music, uh, started growing and growing until it reached, you know, past the six minute mark. A pretty good take there. And then kept on going until Patty burst through and created the track that was on horses. On horses, Patti Smith summoned some of the great spirits of rock, recording the album's closing song, Elegy, on the 18th of September, the anniversary of Hendrix's death. I just don't know what to do. The song she co-wrote with television's Tom Verlaine centered upon another one of her idols, Jim Morrison, who she envisioned as an angel with stone wings in a dream, crying for him to break it up. We rolled on the ground, he stretched out his wings, the north flew away and he started to sing.
And as much as Patti Smith's debut album, Horses, referenced the rock gods, it also drew free-form inspiration from jazz visionaries. We drew as much from elements of free jazz, which both Patti and I liked, Albert Eiler and John Coltrane. You know, the sense of, of noise and sound and freedom from melody and rhythm, where you just kind of let things move into being the music of the spheres. Patty's poetry was always at the core. Inspired by Bob Dylan, Smith was joining the forces of spoken word with music, much in the way artists like The Last Poets and Gil Scott Heron were making the same connection in black music. The revolution will not give your mouth sex appeal. The revolution will not get rid of the nub. The revolution will not make you look five pounds thinner because the revolution will not be televised, brother. Smith also invokes the spirit of literature, name-checking her muse, Rimbaud, and referencing the beautiful sexual male Johnny from her friend William Burroughs' novel, The Wild Boys, in her song, Land. Suddenly, Johnny gets a feeling he's been surrounded by horses, 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 coming in in all directions, white, shining, silver, studs with their nose in flames. He saw horses, 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 horses. She developed it and improvised on it because we were very much into improvisation, giving her a field of energy in which she could let her imagination roam. With touchstones of Rimbaud, Shakespeare, and Coltrane, how can Patti Smith's debut album, Horses, be considered as one of the progenitors of punk? It's that opening indictment in the album's first track. Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. This is a statement of artistic purpose, that you are going to be in control of your art and and your sense of persona. I believe that's what the album represents to so many people, certainly to us. It may not seem obvious, but singer-songwriter Katie Tunstall is one of the many, many artists who have been inspired by Patti Smith, and in particular, that album opener. This way of screaming, of delivering these lyrics, and really you drop whatever you're doing and listen to the rest of it. Katie remembers how Patti Smith's Horses was integral to her career and her own platinum-selling debut, Eye to the Telescope. Two, three, It was probably in my later 20s when it really changed everything, looking at the cover of that record. My heart knows it better than I know myself, so I'm gonna let her do all the talking. So I'd left Scotland and I was sitting in the basement flat I'd rented in London for an extortionate amount of money while they were doing renovations on the ground floor above. I basically wasn't getting any sleep. I remember sitting in the flat about two in the morning listening to some music, but I was just holding the horse's album in my hands and I was thinking about how think about photography more really just the fact that you know there's that 
indigenous belief that you're capturing someone's soul and there's something in it, you know, that you can take a snapshot of someone at a certain point in their life that remains an incredibly important flag in the ground for where they were and who they were at that point. Katie had been trying to make her way as an artist for 10 years. And when she finally found herself in London with a publishing deal and a possible record contract, it was Patti Smith who inspired her to take a blind jump off the cliff. And here's this woman who looks what we would now call totally gender fluid. No one said that at the time then, but that's what it was. This full on androgyny looking at me from the album cover but I'm playing the part of Robert Mapplethorpe taking the picture and she's just not trying. And I think as someone who was trying incredibly hard, it struck me deeply that I would like to be someone who wasn't trying hard. I would like to be someone who was just being and making and creating and delivering. There was an inspiration there. But it's there's something challenging about the photograph where she's just there's an insouciance and she's just like, well, who are you? I know who I am. And I suppose I just really love the coolness of that. What does freedom mean to you? Freedom is inside of me. It means that I'm not hung up with like anybody's idea of how I should be. You know, I'm outside, I'm outside of society. I'm an artist. Rock and roll is my art. Along with Katie Tunstall, horses inspired generation after generation of musicians. The Patti Smith Group's legendary performance at the Roundhouse in London in 1976 helped build the foundations of punk in the United Kingdom and Europe. Patty's influence can be heard globally and acts from many musical strains and so many cite her as an influence. Morrissey, Martha Wainwright, Scissor Sisters Anna Montronic, Shirley Mountain of Garbage, Ed Harcourt, electronic classical musician Patrick Wolfe, and Courtney Barnett. Even the Patti Smith Group guitarist Lenny Kay is surprised by the legacy of horses. It is amazing that here, 43 years after we walked out of the studio, uh, having done the final mix, that we are still talking about this album. And I have to say the album, as a band, it sounds young to me. It sounds like we're really straining. We're, we're like ponies. We, we can do it. We can do it. And... There's a certain innocence and a certain uh, naivete to that, which I believe also helped make the album special to so many people. So many people who don't even sound like us. I mean, you know, we've spoken with uh, Bono from U2 or The Edge or Michael Stipe and Peter Buck from R.E.M. And these are people that drew a sense of self-definition from the album and they don't sound at all like us. And not only did Patti Smith and her debut album Horses change the course of rock and roll through inspiring other artists, but it also inspires anyone who listens. The album is transformative. I believe that is true, that, that we believed in the healing power and the inspirational power that is art because we also took our sensibility from that. 
the sense of transcendence. And that's exactly what Patti Smith made me feel as a suburban teenager all those years ago, that I too could move to New York City and transform myself and mold myself into the person I wanted to be, or in another view, let my true colors shine. And that's what I did with a little inspiration from Patti. She believes in making the people rise, making them aspire to their higher consciousness and does it in a way that's sometimes kind of friendly, sometimes kind of fierce, sometimes very challenging, and sometimes let's have a good time. And that to me is what makes her a unique artist and and why I feel so privileged to be uh, riding shotgun with her. Our story was produced by Colleen Cosmo-Murphy and Studio 360's Jocelyn Gonzalez. To find out more, you can visit Colleen's website at classicalbumsundays.com. We've already been asking listeners for their favorite albums by women, and listener Iris Rose wrote in with this. Here are four greats off the top of my head. Short Sharp Shock by Michelle Shock, Exile in Guyville by Liz Fair, Bachelor Number no. 2 by Amy Mann, and Chateau Crone by Agent Ribbons. Thanks, Iris, and 100% agree on Liz Fair. And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is... Sandra Lopez-Monsalve. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. And our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. I'm Kurt Anderson. I want you to feel safe... I want to feel safe. I want to get this job done. Thank you very much for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. Talking about my experiences as a female was sort of startling. Ani DeFranco on her new memoir. A lot of people kind of recoiled from it. A lot of people dubbed me as angry. But there was also a lot of women who just came out of the woodwork to say me too. Next time on Studio 360. Says, call me Miss DeFranco if there's anything I can do. I say, it's Mr. DeFranco.